Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Virginia Allen. And I'm Kristen Eichhammer. And joining us once again today here at the Heritage Foundation is Heritage Foundation Senior Legal Fellow, Sarah Partial-Perry. Sarah, thanks so much for being back with us today. I love the show and I love talking with you guys. Well, we love having you. And speaking of news and things happening in the world, flights. Are any flights ever going to be on time ever again. I mean, looking at what was going on on Wednesday morning with the FAA, big question mark there. So what I, I, the short answer to this is everything the government gets involved in seems to fall apart. And this particular administration can't wait to get its hands into the American's life, every average American's existence from day to day. Now, and we're going to talk about this later, they're talking about banning gas stoves, but the FAA's kerfuffle, its outdated computer equipment indicates to me exactly how broken the federal system is. Mm -hmm. If they have computer problems, if they have technology that needs to be updated, perhaps we look to spend money on making sure that planes don't go down in the sky (laughs) instead of pursuing a whole of government climate change agenda. I mean, you think of everything that that we could spend our time uh, and investing in technology wise. And what is Probably the number one thing that should be updated regularly, technology-wise, is all the technology that runs our flights and lets planes take off and land. Because that affects literally everything. It's not just passenger travel, but it's goods getting from point A to point B. Uh, and they're not exactly instilling confidence right now. No, definitely not. I think just going along with what you were saying, the funding that we're seeing right now, and it's kind of exploded on Twitter today, that they're funding a lot of ESG efforts and, you know, looking at let's put a bunch of money into projects that focus on diversity. And it's like, okay, cool. How is that going to get me from D.C. to California without falling out of the sky? Yeah. And, like, I just went to Hawaii in August, <laughs> and I saw what happened with Hawaiian Airlines literally two months later, and I'm like, okay, FAA, Let's let never let that happen again. Yet we're still pushing this ESG agenda. I actually proactively canceled a Southwest flight mm. because watching that entire debacle oh. over the holiday season, and my Felt heart goes out. People. My oh. heart goes out to those people who are visiting their family, long lost relatives, friends. This is the time of the year where you look forward to these reunions, and then getting back home and kind of getting back into the grind. Fifteen thousand flights grounded from Southwest. Now mm. that's a private carrier. They need to handle their own equipment. They need to make better adjustments in the boardrooms of the C suites of the executives who are getting paid millions of dollars to run a private airline. But when my tax dollars Mm -hmm. go to the FAA, I want to make sure that the actual computer technology is up to par so I can get from a point to another. Yeah. Well, we are coming out of the gate swinging today. Yes. <laughs> Do we ever? Do we ever? You know, guys, I go from kid gloves to brass knuckles when I'm in here. So. One extreme or the other. Kristen, go ahead and let us know what we have queued up on today's show. For sure. Up on today's Problematic Women, the Biden administration challenges states with new tactics to expand America's access to abortion. We tell you what you need to know. Plus, Biden finally paid pays a visit to the southern border, although many believe he's a little late. And gas stoves come under fire, pun intended, from the Biden administration. (laughs) As always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Women of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find the stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are so often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. 
If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right. Let's get to it. In the Wild West that is the post-Roe v. Wade world, abortion drugs have become the most recent topic of debate. Requests for mail-order abortion pills increased by 62.4% in states with total abortion bans, according to Axios. And A.G. Garland first responded that states cannot ban abortion pills because they have been approved by the FDA. But many legal experts are encouraging states to stand up against the Biden administration's most recent attack on life. Sarah, obviously, you've got a lot of thoughts on this as our legal expert. But what's interesting about this topic is abortions really have become less medicalized and more of an at-home practice, which totally just takes away from the seriousness of the matter. Can you explain why the FDA's approval of abortion pills might not be the catch-all solution that the Biden administration wants it to be? So this administration's been very creative with the law, right? They've mm-hmm. used EMTALA, the Emergency uh, Medical Treatment and Labor Act. They've used the interim final rule on abortion coming from the Veterans Administration. They've tried to cover abortion travel under the DOD. This is the newest effort. Garland gets up there and he very glibly says, you can't disagree with the FDA. We've deemed it safe and effective for use, and you can't ban them in the states based on that determination. Well, I have news for you. The FDA's approval for use, safe safety and efficacy for use, doesn't amount to a requirement that that drug has to be used, number one, or mailed, number two. And in fact, all it is is something that prevents a state from being prosecuted for actually using that drug within the state. If, for example, the state decided that they were going to use a drug that didn't have the FDA stamp of approval, they could subject themselves to liability from the federal government. So what we want people to know, and my colleague Tom and I have written about this extensively, we've written a legal memo, and I just had a piece in the Washington Times, it is completely within states' powers to ban abortifacients, just like they have done for other abortion bans, whether those are gestational age limits, whether they're heartbeat bans, whether they're medical licensing restrictions. This is just another opportunity for states to get involved and say, you know what, P.S., we're also going to either eliminate or restrict the use of abortifacients within our state boundaries. And there's good reason to believe that that would happen and would be legally sound. And I'll tell you why. The Supreme Court, when it took up all of these COVID restrictions, right, we saw the CDC eviction moratorium, we saw the OSHA vaccine mandate, um, we saw the EPA's uh, carbon emissions cap. This is an administration that will say, well, if you've got a statute here, we'll just sort of interpret it creatively and we'll accomplish what we really want to do. Well, the Supreme Court determined specifically in relation to COVID that this is ultimately something we'll only get involved in if there's a federal question or a federal restriction coming from the federal government. But interestingly, it denied review on all state challenges for COVID restrictions, whether those were 
vaccine limitations, whether they were limitations on public gatherings, the only ones they took up were questions that involved constitutional questions like mm-hmm. religious liberty, for example. But they declined to get involved in it. They were they were saying states have authority to make these decisions. Themselves. You got it. Okay. You got it. So we can actually look to the COVID litigation. And this is pretty recent. This is you know only about a year and a half ago and say, what would the Supreme Court do with a challenge from, for example, the FDA or the Department of Justice if, let's say, Arkansas decided to ban abortifacients? And that goes all the way to the Supreme Court. Well, based on what we know, A, about the court's composition, and B, about what they know in being favorable to states' rights, and this falls under that Tenth Amendment plenary Mm -hmm. police power, states take care of health, safety, welfare, medical licensing, medicine, it is completely within that bubble. And now that we've overturned Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court already anticipated this would be something the states would want to get involved in. Abortifacients are no different. So that's good news mm-hmm. for state legislators who are out there who are going, I wonder if we have an opportunity to cut down on chemical abortions. Those account for more than 50 percent wow. of the abortions mm-hmm. in America. That's a huge dent yeah. in the killing of babies. That is huge. But Sarah, I, I have a question sort of on the practical side of that, because uh, let's say that this moves through the courts and all Ultimately, states get to decide whether or not they're going to allow abortion pills in their own state, allow women to take them. Um, what is to prevent a woman from you know, ordering drugs from Planned Parenthood or whatever and then being mailed to her? How do you regulate that? And you know, that there would have to be decisions made about, OK, then who's prosecuted? Like, does the, does the woman get in trouble? Is it the provider who mailed the pills? There's a lot of questions there. Tons of legal questions. And we're, you know, we in the legal department are playing a bit of whack-a-mole, right? <laughs> because this is a situation that I think many of us, after 50 years of trying to get rid of Roe, find ourselves right in the middle of trying to wade through, mm-hmm. right? Democracy's messy. We're having to take care of these issues one at a time. The Biden administration is being creative, but state legislature Legislators and federal legislators are being creative, too. One of the things, the short answer on that is there is a law that dates all the way back to the late 1800s called the Comstock Act. And that's actually part of the U.S. Criminal Code. Um, And in the Comstock Act, it actually bans the interstate shipment or the use of the postal services or electronic transmissions of abortifacients. Why? Because there was a national policy in the late 1800s and again again in 1938 when it was renewed, of protecting life. Oh, shock and awe. Even Mm -hmm. before Roe versus Wade, there was, as the courts have said, a national policy to preserve life. Now, we just saw an opinion come out from OLC, Office of Legal Counsel, at Department of Justice. They issued what's called an advisory opinion. Sometimes federal agencies, the higher level secretaries will go to the lawyers like me, because I was in the the, uh, civil rights office, but very much like this, and say, can you issue us an opinion, right? Do the research. Tell us what you think would happen. Does the Comstock Act actually restrict abortifacients? Well, by the text of its terms, it absolutely does. But OLC issued an opinion. Not surprisingly, remember I told you Mm. Biden's administration's getting incredibly creative. This is no different. Mm. Saying, no, it doesn't restrict abortifacients. That is a challenge we're ultimately going to see in federal court as well. And I think if that makes it to the Supreme Court, the court's going to say, listen, 
if Congress wanted to change the Comstock Act, and by the way, there was an attempt at repeal back in the late 80s, early 90s, and it failed. If you want to modify the Comstock Act to make abortifacients more readily accessible, Congress could have done it, but it did not. And that's a big distinction. Well, and Sarah, I I think while we're on this conversation, we do need to talk about Born Alive. So on uh, Wednesday evening, Congress is considering, the House specifically, is considering a bill that would protect children born alive after botched abortions. Mm -hmm. What exactly do we know about this piece of legislation? And I mean, it seems it seems pretty common sense. Like if, if a child is born and if they're living, they're breathing on their own, they should receive medical care. They should receive medical attention so that they live and have a shot at life. And somehow, though, for years, this has been controversial, uh, which is mind boggling. But do you think we could see actually Democrats and all Republicans get behind this and say, let's pass this common sense bill? You know, I'd like to say that, yes, we're going to see Democrats and particularly so in the Senate, because obviously the the GOP doesn't have control of the upper chamber. I'd like to think we could come to a bipartisan conclusion about the necessity of this bill. And listen, this is not these aren't hysterics from the right. Mm -hmm. We all remember when Governor Ralph Northam, who was then governor of Virginia, was sitting in an interview and talking about that particular state's piece of legislation that was introduced by a very radical legislator that essentially allowed infanticide and was faced with the question, well, what do you do if an infant survives a botched abortion? I mean, you're you're talking about allowing abortion into Mm -hmm. the third trimester. What if it fails? Well, We would make the infant comfortable, Mm -hmm. and then we would have a conversation between the woman and her doctor. It's like, great. Well, while you're having your conversation, that child's dying. Yeah, You know, and I'm thinking at some point, where's the fire from heaven? Because I feel like I'm in Sodom, right? This is – it's absolutely unconscionable. And they kind of – I mean, the left has kind of showed us what they – are actually going to do. I mean, just in the last year in D.C., we had some senators demand from Mayor Bowser that we do an investigation on um, five babies that were aborted in D.C. that were likely born alive. And I mean, the news isn't even talking about that. I remember when um, Roger Severino, um, one one of my colleagues here, shared that story to me. I'm like, wait, that actually happened? And it happened last April. So uh, they've kind of showed us, yeah, sure, maybe they're going to make them comfortable and like keep their fingers crossed that like, you know, the baby does end up dying because that is what they have done in the past. Mm-hmm. It's disgusting. Yeah, it that's disgusting. that's absolutely it. And we haven't seen any investigation of those uh, children who were clearly third trimester, some of them considered to be full term. No investigation of the violation of um, the Born Alive Infant Survivor Protection Act, because clearly what happened was that those infants were aborted in violation of that federal law. But it mm-hmm. requires enforcement. Right. Mm-hmm. Laws are no good unless you have somebody who is willing, yep. able, right. and interested in enforcing them. And we've seen a lot of that from this administration. It's really unfortunate. It is unfortunate. Well, we're going to continue to keep you all posted on this because this is huge and it's common sense that we should protect life, all life, from the womb to the tomb. Um, and to think that there would be individuals who wouldn't back protecting babies born alive is just unconscionable. So we're going to keep you in the loop on what happens with this legislation. But we have a lot more to get to, including uh, President Biden finally deciding that he wanted to visit the southern border. So we're going to explain why it matters right after this. 
Virginia Allen here. I want to tell you all about a great way you can stay in the know on all the news The Daily Signal covers. Social media. The Daily Signal has an active presence on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We are constantly posting news stories, clips from interviews, videos, and more across all our social platforms. Follow The Daily Signal on social media so you can get all the latest content from reels on Instagram to video clips on Facebook and political commentary on Twitter. President Joe Biden can now say that he's been to the border. Biden spent a whole three hours at the border on Sunday. He landed at the airport in El Paso, Texas, where he saw a few different demonstrations from Customs and Border Protection. Then he did visit a section of Border Wall and then went to a migrant processing center. Now, many on the political right are calling Biden's visit sort of a a whitewashed version of the border (laughs) since he really didn't see the nitty gritty of what actually happens uh, as far as illegal migrants coming over the Rio Grande, crossing over often in mass in hundreds, and then how Border Patrol has to deal with all that, has to process those individuals and is pulled away from their posts on other sections of the border, leaving the border vulnerable to drug traffickers, human traffickers to come across. And even in El Paso, the city where Biden visited, we know that there's been uh, encampments of illegal aliens who had nowhere else to go, and they cleaned up those encampments Mm -hmm. so that Biden would see El Paso as a nice, nice, pristine city instead of the underbelly of the results of his policies. I mean, what, what should we give Biden credit for in visiting the borders. Should we give him any credit at all? <laughs> I mean, let's let's just give him credit, I guess, for getting his plane off the ground because apparently that's a challenge now. <laughs> like maybe maybe that. <laughs> the FAA apparently was working then. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Air Force One was able to get there. Yeah, thank good. God. <laughs> no, I'll tell you what I was most impressed by was the um, the real moxie that was demonstrated by Governor Greg Abbott, who handed him a letter as he was deplaning off Air Force One, mm-hmm. and the letter said, "We have it up at uh, DailySignal.com." The letter said, your visit's $20 billion too late and two years too late. Mm-hmm. $20 billion short, two years too late. Yeah. I, and I went, you know what? That's a perfect descriptor. Commander-in-chief mm-hmm. fails to go to the border, knows that the numbers are approaching a quarter of a million apprehensions, mm-hmm. goes apparently now almost in the full second to two-thirds of his sitting presidency. And I'm thinking, you know, any president who recognizes that this is a crisis, a humanitarian crisis of massive proportions, it's a national security crisis, we know it's tied in explicitly to the fentanyl crisis Mm -hmm. and American deaths. Mm -hmm. This is something I think as commander-in-chief should have been at the top of his priority list, but we have not seen any kind of manifestation prior to January of 2023. Mm-hmm. And I love that um, Governor Abbott really pointed to the cost of this yes. because that was something that President Trump was criticized for was how much a border wall would cost. And earlier, I, I kind of broke down the numbers. I don't have exactly the right numbers. Um, but he originally estimated that, you know, building a, a border wall and, and re um, solidifying different areas of the wall would cost about $16 billion. So, 
I mean, there's other numbers out there, and it was looking like it would be closer to $27 billion. But, I mean, that number of $20 billion too late that Governor Abbott handed to to President Biden, like, why don't we have a wall? If that, you know, you're looking at the opportunity costs, the one that saves more tax dollars is the one of building the wall. So whatever policy, you know, humanitarian outlook you have on it, at the end of the day, if you want to save some money, it's, it looks like we probably should have built a wall. Yeah. Well, save, and it, save it, money and lives. Yeah. And in addition to that, one of the things that he recognized was, you know, we could really solve this problem by revoking Remain in Mexico. And I, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, you know, it's funny because that was a very effective tool to say, you'll wait here until your application is yep. processed, mm-hmm. until you are granted full U.S. citizenship, as opposed to, we'll take you first, mm-hmm. we'll drain the resources, we'll, in, we'll increase the security threats in the American border towns. And my heart goes out to places like mm-hmm. Texas and New Mexico and Arizona, who are really mm-hmm. sort of experiencing the flood of illegal immigration. Mm-hmm. And there are people who are immigrants there who are running small businesses. Mm-hmm. They put their hearts and souls into this. They've gone through the appropriate immigration process. And it really, really breaks my heart for them because I recognize how patently unfair it must seem. Oh, them. yeah. No, I mean, we know from from talking with individuals on the ground, you know, I, I've been down in Texas, so many at, at the Daily Signal, we've been covering this for so long. And ranchers, honestly, are the ones, farmers and ranchers are getting so mm. much of the brunt of this. Because when you have illegals coming across, they're doing things like cutting fences. Well, you can't keep cattle in mm. a fence that's cut. Yeah. So then they're, these farmers, these ranchers, they're losing their livelihoods when illegal migrants are walking through farmland. Well, now that's crops that are being destroyed that they can't use, that it's not sanitary to be used. Uh, a lot of people are, are pointing to that as one of the reasons why we see things like cost of, of certain food products uh, and produce soaring. So there's all of these implications and the folks on the border, they deal with it first. And then we're starting to see this outgrowth in cities like New York, Chicago, that are starting to feel this burden of, oh, wait, this is what these policies mean. And these are the actual effects. I mean, if if you think back to last year, Customs and Border Protection encountered 2.7 million illegal migrants Mm -hmm. already this year. We're on track to outpace last year. This is not sustainable. No. Absolutely. And um, I actually... Um, and I have family that's working in the customs realm of all of this. And that's something mm. I think people kind of forget is customs is all over our country. You know, we have customs control on in, in Atlanta. That's like one of the biggest airports um, that we have. And it was interesting talking to them over the holidays because I was able to understand like they're being tapped to go to the border. And I mean, for those who have families, they're they're being taken out of their homes, wow. sent to the border, and then asked to work 12-hour shifts, sometimes even longer, for multiple days on end. And mm. actually, something that's particularly scary, especially for those of you who maybe have family members working in Customs and Border Control, is the suicide rate has increased dramatically. I don't exactly have the number, but I mean, just imagine being told, yeah, you're going to work eight days straight for 12 to 15 hours, maybe more. Like some people are putting in 20 hours and there's literally nothing that the Biden administration is doing to alleviate any of this. It's it's awful. It's unfair to these Customs and Border Patrol agents. And honestly, at the end of the day, it's unfair to the people coming here because they're getting a really raw deal when they arrive. Yeah, yeah they are. I mean, Biden's, I think, perpetual solution is let's throw more money at it. And that's 
my inclination of what he said, he, he didn't say a lot while he was down there, uh, but he did say, you know, it's clear that the folks down here need more resources. We're going to get it for them. Mm-hmm. That means money to him, and it means throwing more individuals to process these asylum claims. It's trying to – it's essentially what he's doing is it would be the same as if, you know, someone dislocates their shoulder and they go to the doctor and the doctor hands them Advil and is like, well, there you go. That should handle it. (laughs) It's not actually fixing the problem. And fixing the problem looks like finishing the border wall, re-implementing Remain in Mexico, and stopping this nonsense of just allowing – illegal aliens to come over and hang out in America as long as they want and putting the onus on the American people to deal with that. Yeah. And I think it's, it's unfair. It it's is. totally because, unfair. And particularly so where we've got a top-down approach to government, right? We're spending all this money at the federal level, and yet we're not spending it on things that keep Americans safe. Mm-hmm. Number one, I give you the FAA, right? That's having trouble, for example, getting planes up and down safely. And number two, I give you the border. But boy, we will throw money at a climate change crisis or abortion on demand. The spending priorities for this bloated administration continue to boggle the mind. And I think just another aspect of throwing money at this problem is something that I was talking to Virginia about yesterday. But What we don't realize is we have all these materials that we have paid for and contracts that we have paid for. And right now, what are we doing with them? Mm -hmm. Um, I actually kind of dug into this a little bit. And last year in July, um, Iowa Senator Joni Ernst um, issued a report that basically said we were spending $3 million a day just to guard the steel, concrete, and other materials in the desert that were left there when Biden on day one said, we're not doing the border wall anymore. And, and that's just to guard them. Imagine if it was a wall that was guarding our country. It would cost literally nothing, literally yeah. nothing. Um, and that's not even taking into account how much it has cost us billions of dollars to cancel these contracts with these contractors. It, it's just... You know, we love to throw money at things, but we're doing it in the least efficient way possible. It's just who's in charge? (laughs) Yeah, who's in charge? Well, and speaking of throwing money at things uh, and certain situations heating up, there is a very interesting situation going on right now that uh, really is right in line with the president's. I don't know if you want to call it a, a distraction tactic, just bending to the radical left, but all of his climate policy proposals, and that is banning gas stoves. The Consumer Product Safety Commission is considering passing regulations and maybe even a ban on natural gas stoves. The The restrictions are and, and the possible ban are because of concerns over harmful air pollutants that research has linked gas stoves, too, saying that maybe um, asthma is a side effect of gas stoves in people's homes. So the agency, they're still gathering information, um, but the commissioner for the Consumer Product Safety Commission, his name is Richard Trumka, he said that the ban is possible because, as was reported by Bloomberg, products that can't be made safe can be banned. So according to Trumka, if you can't make it safe... You just got to ban it. The Washington Examiner reports that gas stoves, they're used in about 40 percent of American homes across the country. And the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission has not yet proposed any of these new restrictions on gas stoves. Uh, So obviously this story is still unfolding. But at the end of the day, what is happening here is that the Biden administration is proposing 
to ban Americans' access to natural gas on a really dubious premise of fighting global warming and uh, concerns over asthma. I mean, how sure do you think that we can be Uh that gas stoves are linked to asthma and would, even if we could say, yes, we know that this is true, would a ban be the right action to take? Uh, we can't is the short answer. And uh, we can start from the beginning. First of all, let's talk about the money, right? Because money talks. And in this administration, it screams. He has proposed $369 billion for a whole of government climate agenda policy. Okay, it's going to start with gas stoves. It's gone to zero emissions vehicles. He tried the EPA emissions cap. Again, it is throwing money at an environmental problem. Global warming, okay, we naturally, and I I won't get into the science, I'm not an expert, but we'll go up a degree a year, all right? If we look at the 100 years of longitudinal data, we've increased about one to two degrees Fahrenheit. But I'm looking at a president who is willing to take dubious science, not only on whether or not asthma is caused by gas stoves, and the World Health Organization has said indoor pollutants, but indoor pollutants include things like candles. Mm -hmm. They include things like burner stoves. Mm -hmm. They include things like, for example, charbroiled food, okay, all of which we know have carcinogenic effects. Mm -hmm. We've taken dubious science on gender identity, what constitutes a woman, mm-hmm. when life is evidenced in the womb, for example, I give you heartbeats, I give you pain capabilities. But of course, now this is simply a brand new manifestation on a, a very uncertain connection between asthma and gas stoves. And he is very willing to slice a knife across the households of 40 million Americans. If you're going to do that, I tell you what, then you hand them all a subsidy to buy your electric stoves, okay? Because how in the world, I'm thinking of myself as a mom, how in the world, if I'm looking at a banned gas stove, am I going to go out and buy a new range? Mm -hmm. That affects me personally, right? Mm -hmm. I do the cooking. Stoves are expensive. Stoves are expensive. In fact, the WHO has actually used the U.S. as an, a good example about our affordable access to clean cooking fuel like gas set us up as being an example of that particular use that we've done right. Oh, but it's not enough for the president. He wants to get rid of the stoves and 40 percent of American households, which yeah. just goes to show you how extreme it is. I think it's a uh... Trust the science, you know, don't ask questions. That's been the theme of, like, the Mm -hmm. last few years. And um, I actually majored in biology uh, at Emory University and um, have some experience with chemicals. I had to take organic chemistry. It was the bane of my existence. (laughs) But... The um, the main factor in this study, I kind of did a little research on it um, by Dr. Eric LaBelle, I think that's how you say that, was um, the, the biggest, the hypothesis, if you will, was that stoves emit enough benzene, which is a toxic carcinogen, so okay, that's the right buzzword, but it emits enough benzene to impact the environment and, and cause this asthma. Just to put it in perspective, benzene is also found in plastics and detergents and crude oil. 
those aren't banned, and I really hope to God that they never are. But it, it was interesting kind of looking into the, the process of how they went about c- making this connection between childhood asthma and um, uh, the amount of benzene that was produced from gas. And honestly, it was so fake. <laughs> um, they took a sample size of about 357 households um, and children in those households and basically made this large assumption, cut a bunch of things out that um, weren't consistent with the studies to validate their hypothesis. Because at the end of the day, that's what science is. You're validating a hypothesis. You're not proving something causes another. I mean, there's studies that can help you conclude that. But I just remember being in college. If I said this hypothesis was true, I got an F on a paper. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, it's hilarious watching these people that have absolutely no background in science whatsoever. And I'm talking college level, not like 40 years, you know, (laughs) put my PhD and my thesis published. Like literally a college level person could tell this administration how ridiculous this study is. You know, the NIH even said, we don't know what causes asthma. Mm -hmm. Now, that hasn't prevented, obviously, a conclusion on the part of this administration. But if you take those who use gas ranges and those who use gas to heat their homes, whether that's through a gas tank, whether that's through, for example, gas-burning fireplaces, you're looking at 187 million Americans impacted. Those would be devastating economic consequences. And in fact, the natural gas industry employs 4.1% of Americans. Mm. So you're going to affect the job sector. You're going to infect every single family with this sort of leftist climate hysteria that forces everyday Americans to essentially assume thousands of direct dollars of government loss heaped on their heads. Now... There is actually talk, there's some scuttlebutt on Twitter, Reuters just carried this today, that the big question now is whether the Biden administration will propose to ban sales of gas-powered cars, Mm. regular gasoline-powered cars. So I I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. You know, in my opinion, what a good percentage of this is, is a distraction, Mm. that The Biden administration, they have not been getting a lot of great press recently. And I think it comes at a time, interestingly, shortly after Biden's trip to the border, wasn't a great trip. And they're like, oh, okay, let's go ahead and and push this out and really hammer and make ourselves look great that, you know, we're really tackling the the climate crisis. And it feels like this is a, a scenario that we have seen so many times that when there's an issue that kind of makes them look like somehow a hero, Mm -hmm. uh, they say, oh, yeah, let's push that one right now because we're failing in every other area. Honestly, I I think that's in many ways what we're seeing here. And and we're seeing appeasement to the the radical far left. We'll we'll have to do the show again in April because that's when the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration plans to propose their brand spanking new fuel economy standards. Mm. And many pundits and economists and scientists have posited that we are going to see the argument for eliminating gas power vehicles I altogether. I will fight for my car. Yes, I, I will. Love I, my car. I will as well. <laughs> oh, Sarah, thank you. We so appreciate your time and you coming on the show today. It is always a blast having you. Well, I love being on with you guys. Thanks for uh, giving me some time with you. Oh, it's a joy. And stay tuned because up next, we're crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week.
Today, news you can trust feels like a rarity. That's why the Daily Signal podcast releases a top news edition every weekday at 5 p.m. Whether driving home from work, fixing dinner, or picking the kids up from soccer practice, you can stay informed on the headlines you care about. Every show is quick and succinct, designed to keep you up to speed on the issues that actually matter. Catch our top news edition right here in your Daily Signal podcast feed every evening. Or listen first thing in the morning before catching the day's interview. And be sure to subscribe on the Daily Signal podcast so you never miss an episode. Now it is that time once again, one of our favorite times of the week here at Problematic Women. It is time to crown our Problematic Woman of the Week. And the crown goes to Chloe Cole. Chloe Cole is a former trans kid. She began telling her friends and family that she was a boy when she was about 12 years old. And she was introduced to gender identity ideology, she says, through she says through social media. She started taking testosterone and puberty blockers at 13 and had a double mastectomy at 15. And at 16, she ultimately decided to detransition. And I had the privilege of talking with Chloe Cole on the Daily Signal podcast yesterday. And I asked her how she first learned about transgenderism and why at, at such a young age, she got this idea in her head that she was a boy. This is what she told me. I started to wonder if like something was wrong with me. And I often felt like I would be better off as a boy. Okay. And social media introduced this idea that I could, that I could be a boy. You know, a lot of the a lot of the feminist content I was seeing alongside the LGBT content that I was exposed to painted a very negative picture of being a woman, being feminine. So I thought it was really interesting that Chloe said that feminist content painted being a woman in, in such a negative light, along with LGBTQ content, that she sort of started thinking, oh, maybe I don't want to be a woman, and even um, in our in another part of our conversation, she said that, you know, from what she was hearing even from you know women in her life, friends, family members, they all were making pretty negative comments uh, about being a woman, about having periods and going through menopause and, and all these things. And it sort of made me step back and say, yeah, how how are we as a society talking about being a woman and, and how can we how can we do better because this is affecting young people and it's it's affecting their perception of womanhood. People like Chloe Cole. I think it's so, so ridiculous that in the age of acceptance and self-love that we mm-hmm. would make femininity such an evil thing just because mm-hmm. it distinguishes between the two sexes yeah. simply because of that. And, you know, yeah, not everything about being a woman is pretty and, you know, it's not all pearls and rainbows. It's also, you know, having your period and having the ability to carry a child. And that is beautiful and God-given. And it it just is so disheartening that while advocates for the LGBT community are are pushing this message of love and acceptance, they're also hating on what makes the sexes so different and, and unique. Yeah. No, I think that's so true. And I think at this moment in history, it's so critical to tell the whole story, right, to give the whole picture. Kids are smart. They know if you're lying to them. Uh, so, you know, we have to be honest about the fact that, yeah, there there are things in womanhood that kind of suck that are a little bit hard. <laughs> yeah. But what, like, what a joy, what a privilege it is to be a woman. And I think starting to 
think about, okay, how, how do we actually reframe to the truth? Mm-hmm. Actually talking about the truth of the beauty of womanhood and of femininity instead of what we've seen so much feminists do, which is just say, well, women have to be more like men mm-hmm. in order to have authority, in order to uh, you know, make it in the workplace. You just have to act like a man. No, you be empowered as a woman, as a strong woman, as a kind woman. As a problematic as woman. As a problematic woman. <laughs> Thanks, Kristen. <laughs> uh, but if, if you want to hear all of the conversation that I had with Chloe, you can find it um, on the Daily Signal website. You can also find it on the Daily Signal's YouTube channel. We put it up there. Uh, but it's really just super eye-opening to hear Chloe's whole story of how she got wrapped up in transgenderism and ultimately why she decided to get out. And she is, she is one problematic lady. She's just 18 years old right now, but she's literally traveling across America as a warning to young people, sharing her story, saying, hey, don't fall into the same lies and trap that I did. Don't make the same mistakes that I made. So a huge congratulations and a huge thanks to Chloe Cole for her boldness, her courage to stand up and to share her story. Yeah, what a, what a beautiful, beautiful story and thing to stand for. But yeah. that's going to be it for this week's Problematic Women. Join us on next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, take a minute, subscribe and share the show. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world. And we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, CastBox, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Have a great rest of your week. Great weekend. And we'll see you right back here next Thursday. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. And be sure to follow Problematic Women on Instagram. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.